Well, you ever heard the phrase, jumping out of the frying pan into the fire? I'm sure you've probably used it before. Did you know that that, um, that expression actually comes from a, a series of, of letters or treaties and responses between William Tyndale and, and Sir Thomas More? The phrase, out of the frying pan into the fire, is an expression about escaping one predicament and leaping into another one that's, that's, that's even worse. Sir Thomas More wrote a paper called a, a Dialogue Concerning Heresies in 1528, and after he published that, Tyndale responded with his, with his own treaties. Um, More then responded to, to Tyndale, to Tyndale's argument in particular, and in, 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 that, in that response, he says, Tyndale has conveyed himself out of the frying pan into the, into the fire. And a few years later, that's exactly where William Tyndale found himself, a literal one, not a literary one. He was publicly strangled, burned at the stake in 1536 for preaching the gospel and translating the Bible into English so the common man could could be able to, to read it. Sir Thomas More, however, wasn't able to gloat. Just a year earlier, he had already been hung as a traitor based upon false testimony because he wouldn't approve of Henry VIII's marriage to, to Anne Boleyn. Out of the frying pan, into the fire. I'm always fascinated by where, the, where sayings like that, that come from. But that's a phrase that describes exactly where the Bible tells us the world is headed. The Bible declares that since the fall, the world is, is going from bad to worse. Regardless of the, of the growth of, of technology, regardless of the medical advancements, regardless of the technology that, where we can monitor just about anything and everything that goes on, on the on the globe, while there may be times of calm, the Bible tells us that sin will grow, things will continue to deteriorate, and the world will fall deeper and deeper into chaos. Now, that's a pretty bleak picture, isn't it? Well, it would be completely hopeless if it wasn't for what's coming in the end, which is the millennial reign of the Prince of Peace, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will ultimately solve the problem of mankind. Until that time comes, though, we're commanded to be good stewards of the earth, even as I wrote to you this past week about uh, getting out and voting. We're, we're supposed to be wise in setting up governments. We're supposed to be faithful in enacting just laws. But the world is not headed toward peace and unity, but toward a final cataclysmic war that the Bible calls the Battle of Armageddon, or the Battle of Megiddo that takes place next to the mountain of Megiddo. Har means mountain, and so we just shorten it to Har Megiddo, Armageddon. And the Bible tells us that that's where everything is, is, is headed. And the closer we get to that, to that point in history... We don't know when that point in history will come, but the closer we get, wars will increase, wickedness will escalate, and there will be unparalleled natural disasters. 
And all of those activities mark the beginning of the end and the outpouring of God's wrath on, on the rebellious world. And that's exactly what John begins to describe for us in chapter 6 of the book of Revelation. I want you to open your Bibles there, if you would. Revelation chapter 6. The worth and worship of the, of the Lamb in chapter 4 and 5, the vision of the throne room, gives way to the preparations for, for war. And we saw last time John's vision of heaven. In, in John's vision of heaven, Jesus receives this seven-sealed scroll, which is the, the title deed of the, of the, of the earth. And, and he is worthy. He's the only one who has the authority. He's the only one who is able to go and take that scroll from the Father who's on the throne and unleash its, its seals. It's the title deed of the earth, but, but unlike a normal deed, which inside on, on what would be written on the scroll would be a description of the inheritance, here is the, here's what you gain, here's what's contained in this deed. Unlike a normal deed, what is contained in this scroll is exactly how Jesus Christ will reclaim what is rightfully His. And John will walk us through what he sees. The, as the scroll is unrolled and each seal is broken, the Lamb initiates step after step that will ultimately lead to his earthly kingdom. He takes back creation from the usurpers. And it will begin in a, in a horrifically terrifying way, but it's only the beginning and will build and get, and get worse and worse to the point where men will, will try to hide themselves in, in caves to, to, to flee the, the wrath. And besides being um, just terrifying, it, it, it begins a, a unique time in, in, her, in human history. The judgments that are unleashed in Revelation 6 and, and beyond are are nothing like anything has ever been seen in, in human history. Now, I don't know if you've ever been to the Holocaust Museum in D.C. I've been to the one in, in Israel. And you just, you walk through that, and it's almost numbing whenever you, I mean, you go in and you begin to take it in, and you get to the point where you can't, your heart doesn't have the capacity to hold the horrors and the wickedness that's there. And, and as unbelievable as the Holocaust was, and everything that, that Nazi Germany did and Hitler did to, to, to the Jews, it's nothing like what is getting ready to come in, in the day of tribulation. Humanism and Satanism will be at their apex on a global scale. The descent of man that started in the fall will, will reach its peak, and God will say enough, and the wrath of the Lamb will come. Now, the Bible teaches us that God is very merciful and loving, but even God has a saturation point. It's not like ours. His is planned and controlled. But the Bible teaches that the long-suffering mercy of God that's been restraining His judgment even up to this very day will reach its capacity and God will declare the time of restraint is over 
and he will now call all rebels into account. It's exactly what the Apostle Paul said on Areopagus whenever he went to the Gentiles there. He says, therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is is allowing his long-suffering to restrain his judgment. God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent. Why? Because he has fixed a day, he's appointed a day, in which he'll judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from from the dead. That's exactly what Paul is talking about, this day that that we're going to see unfolded in in Revelation chapter 6 and and beyond. The man is the Lord Jesus Christ, and, and when he comes in judgment, all the human systems of the world are going to be swept aside, making way for the messianic kingdom. Jesus taught about this time during his, his earthly ministry, even before the Apostle Paul. And I don't expect you to write all these down, but just to show you how much Jesus spoke about these very things that you're seeing, or we're going to see in Revelation 6. Jesus talked about false messiahs that would come, false prophets. He talked about the wars and rumors of wars in Matthew 24. He talked about famines that would come, pestilences persecutions, earthquakes, cosmic phenomena, the, the, the stars would, would fall. In fact, if you go to Matthew 24 called the Olivet Discourse, it is a, it's a perfect parallel, it's exact parallel, even in order of what John sees here in Revelation 7. You remember the Olivet Discourse. This is the Passion Week. We're coming up on Easter And the week before Jesus goes to the cross, somewhere in the middle of the week, he goes to the Mount of Olives, he's with his disciples after he he makes the pronouncement that the temple is going to be torn down, speaking of his death and resurrection. And the disciples ask Jesus two questions. When will the kingdom come? When are you going to set up the kingdom? And what will the signs of your your coming be? And, And Jesus answers in Matthew 24... It says, first will come deceptive feet, uh, peace and false prophets in verses 4 and 5. Then it's going to come worldwide war in verses 6 and 7. It's going to be followed by famine in verse 7. Then earthquakes and natural disasters. He warned them many would be martyred during this time in verse 9. The sky would go black. And all of this, Jesus says, is only the birth pangs or the beginning of the end that would lead to his second coming. And that's exactly what you see here in Revelation chapter 6. The first seal unleashes a rider that is given authority over the earth's kingdoms. The second seal, war comes. The third seal brings famine. The fourth brings death. The fifth seal, the martyred souls are crying out under the altar, How long, O Lord, until your vengeance? And then come the seven trumpets and the, the seven bowls. And all of that was told, foretold hundreds of years before Jesus ever spoke about it in Matthew 24 in the Old Testament. It's the day of the Lord spoken of throughout the Hebrew Bible. It's the 70th week of Daniel's 
prophecy in Daniel 9.27. It's the seven years of great tribulation, the time of Jacob's trouble. And its purpose, from cover to cover of the Bible, is always the same, declared to be the same. It's for God to pour out judgment upon the unbelieving nations of the earth and to prepare Israel for the return of Christ. And it will end with the with the millennial kingdom. Let's read Revelation 6 and see how John unfolds this for us. He says, Now I saw when the, when the Lamb opened one of the seals, I heard one of the four living creatures saying with a voice loud like thunder, Come and see. And I looked and behold... A white horse, he who sat on it had a bow and a crown given to him, and he, and he went out conquering to conquer. And when he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come, and another horse, fiery red, went out, and it was granted to, to the one who sat on it to take peace from the earth, and that the people would kill one another, and there was given to him a great sword. And when he opened the third seal, I heard... The third living creature say, Come and see. So I looked, and behold, a black horse, and he who sat on it had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard a voice in the midst of the four creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not harm the oil and the wine. And when he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come and see. And so I looked, and behold, a pale horse. And the name of him who sat on it was Death. And Hades followed him. And power was given to them over a fourth of the earth to kill with the sword, with hunger, with death, and by the beasts of the earth. And when he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they they held. And they cried with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth. Then a white robe was given to them, and it was said to them that they should rest a little while longer until the number of their fellow servants and brethren would be killed as they were, was completed. And I looked, and when he opened the sixth seal, behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth, and the moon became like blood, and stars of heaven fell to the earth as a fig tree drops its late figs when it's shaken by a mighty wind. And the sky receded as a scroll and was rolled up. And every mountain and island moved out of its place. And the kings of the earth, the great men, the rich men, the commanders, the mighty men, every slave and every free man hid themselves in the caves and in the rocks of the mountains and said to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us and hide us from him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of his wrath has come. Who is able to stand? Now there are two questions we have to resolve before we're getting into this passage. And both declare the interpretation of, of what we're seeing. The two questions are, when do these events happen? When do the events that, 
that I just read to you that John records, when do they happen? Are they in the past? Are they in the future? Are they spiritual events? Not talking about something literal. And how do these relate to one another? I didn't read the trumpets and the bowls, but they're all inner intertwined. There's several ways that people interpret this this section. There's a certain interpretation that says this describes events that that are past. This is what's called preterism. It describes the the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 A.D. There are actually people that view what I just read to you is the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 A.D. And there is nothing There's nothing that's going to happen in this passage in the future. There are those who who interpret it from a historical standpoint. They say that what is described in Revelation 6 are the major events that are going to happen from John's time up to the second coming of of Christ. So this is just a a broad brush of everything that's going to take place from the first coming and the and the second coming. It's not talking about the tribulation period. There's the there's the future approach. It describes a future period just prior to the second coming of Christ. And then as I said, there are others who 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 use idealism, it's describing spiritual truths and just basically saying good will eventually prevail over either. And then there's there's the bunch, the politicians that just mesh it all together and say everybody's right, all right? And yet, what does the Bible tell us, which is about this passage? John has already told us very clearly in chapter 4 and also in chapter 1 that he is recording future events. What must take place after this? Revelation 4.1. These are future events according to the Word of God. These are literal events according to the Word of God. And as you're going to see, as we walk through these, these are unprecedented in human history. There's no way they could be describing what took place from John's time up until today. Oh, we've had certain things like this. We've had world rulers that that have tried to conquer. We have had famines and we have had earthquakes, but nothing like what John describes and sees here. These are future events describing the great tribulation that's coming upon the earth just before the coming of Christ. So how are the the seven seals and bowls and trumpets, how are they... How do they relate to one another? They're they're all intertwined and they they present one event in, in many stages the lamb when the lamb broke the seventh seal there was silence in heaven for about a half an hour and i saw the seven angels who stand before god and seven trumpets were were given to them the seven seals that we're going to see it's it's an entire overview of the of the tribulation period and then the trumpets and the bowls are contained within the seventh seal of the scroll. So the entire tribulation period is the seven seals. Here's the title deed, and the deed describes how the Lamb is going to reclaim the earth. And there are seven seals that are unfurled. In the seventh seal, the seventh seal contains the seven trumpets 
and the seven bowls. It builds just exactly like Daniel foretold. Three and a half years of seeming peace, and then it gets really ugly from that point forward. You can see that in Revelation 8, 2. In Revelation eleven fifteen, the, the seventh angel, when he sounds the trumpet, there's a declaration, and all the way up in Revelation 16, at the sound of that trumpet, the bowls or vials are, are un, unleashed. The seven seals are an overview of the entire tribulation period, and the trumpets and bowls are contained within the, the seventh seal. The seventh seal contains the trumpet judgments, and the trumpet, the seventh trumpet contains the bowl judgments. It's just like Daniel foretold. So with all that background, because we're getting ready to hit in a long passage that's going to describe the same thing, it's important to know how it relates. With all of that background, let's see how chapter 6 is, is outlined. There's the white horse of dominion in verses 1 and 2. There's the red horse of war in verses 3 and 4. There's the black horse of famine in verses 5 and 6. There's the pale horse of death in verses 7 and 8. The ending of the horses come with this scene in heaven of prayers of the martyrs, prayers for vengeance in verses 9 through 11. That's the bridge to the, to the second half of the tribulation period. Then there's the destruction of nature. And then, as I said, the seventh seal unleashes the trumpets and the seventh trumpet unleashes the bowls. John begins with these four horsemen that introduce judgment. And he starts with this white horse of, of dominion. Look, at, if you would, at verse 1. He says, Now I saw when the Lamb opened one of the seals, I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, Come. That's the command, not to John, but to the rider. Come. And I looked, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on it had a bow and a crown given to him, and he went out conquering to conquer there's a command for the rider to come. There's a bow and a crown and the fact that he's conquering. And then there's the catastrophe that, that he brings, the, the dominion. Verse 1 of chapter 6, the scene moves from heaven to earth. And the Lamb opens one of the seven seals. And one of the four living creatures gives a command to come. It's exactly the same thing with all of these first four seals the lamb opens the seal, the living creature gives the command, and a horse and a rider goes forth to the earth. And what is written on the scroll is not read, it's acted out. The actions in heaven are determining the events on the earth. Very similar to Zechariah chapter 1, verses 8 through 11, and chapter 6, when he talks about the, the horsemen and the chariots that's, that's there. And John describes this, this first rider that he sees is sitting on a white horse. He's carrying a bow. He's wearing a crown. And he goes forth to, to conquer. This is not the Lord Jesus Christ, although it may be tempting to believe that, that it is. Jesus is in heaven unfurling the, the seals of the, of the scroll. But there are a number of people that have mistaken this rider to be, to be Christ. It's an understandable mistake. Similarities with Christ. Both ride a white horse. 
Both wear a crown, although Jesus has many crowns. This is the crown of a victor. Jesus wears the crown of, of a diadem. And both are, are overcomers. But there's also some significant differences. Differences from Christ. The lamb is loosing the seals. He's not riding forth, not at this point. The lamb wields a sword that comes out of his mouth, a sharp two-edged sword, not a bow. And the lamb rides at the end of the tribulation period, not at the, not at the beginning of the tribulation period. This rider is given dominion. Some believe it's the Antichrist. Whether it's the Antichrist or the leaders that set up for his, for his coming, what they do, what this judgment is, is very clear. Look at the end of verse 2. He went out conquering. That was his purpose, to conquer. The beginning of the birth pangs, Jesus said in Matthew 24, would include false messiahs. There would be individuals that look like a savior. They would make promises. They would be leaders. They would try to get individuals to follow them. But they would be deceivers. And they would conquer by deceptive means. And before the terrors of the tribulation break loose, the Bible predicts a period of world peace. And through it, the world will be lured into this sense of false security and they'll follow the ones who provide that peace. Ultimately, the Antichrist will step forward and will lead the world. Jeremiah speaks of, they dress the wound of my people as though it were not serious. Peace, peace, they say, and there, yet there is no, no peace. 1 Thessalonians 5, 14. While, while people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as the labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and they'll not escape. There are calls all the time for a unifier to come and bring peace to the world. Hillary Clinton's new campaign slogan is she wants to make America whole. Again, people are talking about unity. How long have you heard about the desire for peace between the Israelis and the Arabs? The Bible says that even during this time, during this time, even the, even the Palestinian-Israeli conflict will cease. And the individual who is able to broker peace in the world will be heralded as a hero. This rider that brings peace, that peace will, will, bring, will bring dominion. The leader who promises peace will require the nations to follow him, and they'll gladly do so. That's what he means here with this, he went out conquering to conquer. Notice, if you will, what he carries. I looked to behold a white horse, and he sat on it, and he had a bow. It's a, he has a bow without any arrows. It shows that his conquering will not even, will not even involve one single shot fired. The world will follow him because of his achievements. And yet that peace will be short-lived. Look at the second seal. When he opened the second seal, in verse 3, I heard the living creature say, Come, and another horse, fiery and red, went out. And it was granted to the one who sat on it to take peace from the earth that the people should kill one another. And there was given to him a, a great Sword. I want you to notice the permission that's given to him to take peace. 
and then how he propagates that. He bears a sword, and, and symbolically, people take up the sword against one another. The second seal is the writer is symbolized in, in bright red. He takes the peace that the world has. As the first writer brings it on the earth, the second one takes it away. The initial success of the, of the white horseman eventually de- degenerates into widespread war. Red denotes the fire and bloodshed that the horseman is given permission to, permission from God to take. He's, he's able to take the peace that's on the earth. And the result is that the people will slay one another. That's exactly what it says. The people should kill one another. This time in the tribulation period, there's a, there's a time of unprecedented bloodshed. Matthew 24, verses 6 through 7. So this is how Jesus, his own words, describes this time. You'll hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you're not alarmed, for this must take place. But the end is not yet, for nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. Jesus is describing there, and the writer of Revelation is describing a time when violence will be commonplace. The earth will be engulfed in constant battle. People will know no rest. Notice the writer is given a great sword at the end of verse 4. Gives you a glimpse of the extent of the, of the war. The word that's used here for sword is like a, little, is like a small sword, an assassin's sword. The, the war will be, will be wicked and, and ugly. And the one who brought peace will now use force to keep his authority. And world massacres will, will take place. Daniel 8.24 describes the Antichrist as one who is skilled in war. His power will be mighty. But not by his own power. He will destroy to an extraordinary degree and prosper, and will perform His will. He will destroy mighty men and the holy people. If you read on in Daniel, which we don't have time to do, the Antichrist will set himself up as God, the man worship, committing the abomination of desolation, and set off a massive conflict. He's going to make a treaty with Israel, promising to be their protector. He's then going to demand their worship and attempt to crush any rebellion whenever they refuse. And that is going to continue until... The final war is fought in the Jezreel Valley at the mountain of Megiddo. And all of this turmoil is going to collapse the the global economy. Look at this third seal. When he opened the third seal, verse 5, I heard the living creatures say, Come, and I looked to behold a black horse, and he who sat on it had a pair of scales in his hand. I want you to notice the writer's scales, and I want you to notice the creature's comments. And I heard a voice in verse 6 in the midst of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius and three quarts of barley for a denarius. The third seal is a black horse. And John uses the word behold. He hasn't used that to this point. It reveals the startling appearance of the, of the rider. The horse represents... Famine, food shortage and economic collapse is, is a logical consequence of worldwide war. 
Those of you who were alive during World War II remember some of the rationing that took place then for the good cause. And with food supplies destroyed, and with those who produced the food fighting, famine will, will come to the earth. It's exactly as Matthew 24, verse 7 stated. There will be famines and earthquakes, Jesus said. The scales are carried in his hand to picture the rationing that's going to take place as a result. The statement that the elders make, a, a quart is the amount of food provided for a soldier every day, and a denarius is a workman's average daily wage. The, the idea is that men will work hard each day just to have enough to survive. Wine and oil will be like treasure in there to be protected. And that starvation will eventually set in and, and disease will, will follow. Look at the fourth seal, verse 7. And when he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the four living creatures saying, Come. And so I looked, and behold, a pale horse. And the name of him who sat on it was Death. And Hades, or the grave, followed him. And power was given to him over a fourth of the earth to kill with the sword, with hunger, with death, and by the beasts of the, of the earth. I want you to notice his name. His name is Death. I want you to notice his companion. The one who rides with him is Hades, or the grave. And I want you to notice the authority that's given to him is to kill. This color pale is, is a light green. It's where we, comes from the word where we, where we get chlorophyll. It's green pigments in plants. It's the, it's the color of sickness. Do you remember whenever you were growing up, uh, Mr. Yuck? You may remember that, those little stickers that they put on everything. Those of you who are, under 30 years of age, you can go Google that and you can see what Mr. Yuck is all about. Its color is green. It's, just, it's the color of sickness and death. And his, and his name indicates what he'll bring. He's going to bring death. And Hades or the grave follows him, meaning that this, this disease and destruction he brings will not be cured. It's going to end in, in sure death. And he's given an authority. And if you can fathom this, over a fourth of the earth, one-fourth of the earth's population perishes at this point in time in the tribulation period. If you use today's population figure somewhere approximately 7 billion people, that means 1.7 billion would die. Now that number is going to be reduced because believers aren't going to be here. They're going to be taken out of that number. How many ever believers are on the earth? The rapture prior to the tribulation, but... Regardless, this number of fourth of those who remain on the earth are massive. And death's going to come by, by four tools. Look at what he says here. He was given, in verse, the end of verse 8, power was given to him over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword, with hunger, with, with pestilence, and by the beasts of the earth. The sword is obvious. It's the war that, that's there. The hunger, the famine, is going to come from the shortages. The pestilence, the disease is going to come from the, come from the famine. 
And then the beast, hungry as well, will turn on people to survive themselves. Terrifying scene. Like nothing the world has ever seen. Nothing even comes close to this. And yet this is the only the beginning. There's still two seals, all the trumpets and the bowls, and even that will be nothing compared to what it will be like to stand before the living God who the Bible describes as a consuming fire. No wonder the writer of Hebrews says, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? You know how you escape this day? You bow the knee right now and confess Jesus Christ as Lord. That's what you do. You say, Oh God, whatever I've done, whatever I will do, I can never atone for it. I can never repay it. I repent and I turn to you. I don't deserve it, but you paid it all. I trust in you and you alone. If I'm going to make it, I'm going to make it through you. I put all of my weight for heaven in you. All of, of everything that I'm trusting in is, in is in your court. And those who don't, when will it come? I don't know. But I can promise you this, according to the authority of the Word of God, it will come. And it sure feels sooner than it did in the day that John wrote this, doesn't it? Don't you bow your heads. First three and a half years of tribulation will begin with false peace. destabilize and de-escalate into worldwide death, disease, chaos. There will be a break at the fifth seal. And then the last three and a half years will, will come forth in the last two seals and the trumpets and the bowls. Kings, the great men, the rich men, the commanders, the mighty men, the slaves, the free. Will try to hide themselves from the one who sits upon the throne. Who is able to stand? No one is able to stand. Except the man, the God-man, the Lord Jesus Christ. Who not only came and stood and walked on the earth, but went to the cross, and God confirmed exactly who He was from raising Him through raising Him from the dead. Do you know Him? Have you repented of your sin? Have you turned to Christ? Have you trusted in Him? I hope you have. If not, the door of mercy is still open. One day it will be shut, but right now it's still open. Christian, this is coming. And we have to live as if it is. And tell others, I hope you're doing that.
Father, as we come, we, we're just, I'm just dumbfounded, Lord. I don't even know how to close. Um, other than the way that I have, pleading with people to repent and turn to Christ. and Oh, God, help me to live in light of this. It's so easy to get wrapped up in daily life and the noise inside your own head and the difficulties of the day. And yet, this is coming. Oh, God, give us eyes to see. Give us faith to believe. Help us. We pray. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. It's in your name we ask these things. Amen.